appropriate topic this morning as we had uh, water failure out here the, during the weekend with the bake in the pipeline and I guess we're still under a boiled water advisory so I brought my own this morning so that's good but uh, we're talking this morning about uh, living water and we have a small intimate group here this morning uh, I hope uh, that uh, this, the number of that are away will also enjoy God's presence and God's uh, blessings wherever they're worshiping him this morning. So what makes you uh, feel alive? What sort of things really get you uh, excited? What uh, makes you feel vibrant and uh, awake and alert and ready to go? Um, Usually it's First thing, the shower in the morning sort of starts to make things a little bit more lively for me. Again, open my eyes again. Um, Maybe you like to jump into a cold lake this time of year. They're they're still cold, aren't they? Even though they say the water's fine, but uh, you know, right? right, It still gets you going when you enter one of our lakes, even on these nice days like today. Some of us like to exercise. We get a little bit of a buzz when we get out there and uh, start uh, to do. that uh, whatever activity we like, uh, running, uh, uh, swimming, or uh, some other sort of exercise. Sometimes even completing a really difficult task will uh, just make us feel that special. We did it. We got it done. It's it's complete, and that's sort of an experience. We, We may get this sort of feeling when we get out and experience nature, walking in a beautiful forest, or watching the sunrise, if we're up that early, and if for those who are late, watching the sunset. But uh, that sort of makes us feel like there's something more, something outside of us, something inside of us, something that we're alive. Or we plan a vacation or things like that. Sometimes we, being with a, a, a good friend or with our, with our spouse, our best friend, that, that really makes us feel alive. And sometimes... We combine all these things. Vicky and I like to take cycling trips and we have a little saying, we usually get it somewhere along one of our trips, it doesn't get any better than this, you know, you're, you're really feeling like this is really nice, you know, this is, we're together, we're exercising, we're in nature and uh, it just, you know, togetherness, we're, we're feeling that aliveness. I, I just uh, um, would like you to think about Again, the theme of John's gospel or the purpose for his writing, and this has been covered a number of times throughout our introductions and throughout our studies of John's gospel, and it comes near the end of the gospel, but we keep going to the end. Some of you like to read the end first anyway, so that's, that's good. But John wrote, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Dave, uh, last week, spent quite a bit of time on believing, and that's really important and key, but the other thing that's tied with it very closely in John's Gospel is life. The belief brings life. And this morning we're focusing a little more on the life uh, aspect of it. When I, uh, just for fun, when I looked up the words in, in the the computer as to how many times believe or believes or those derivatives of believe occur in John's gospel. It, it said there were 59 of them. And that was the count. I looked up alive and live, lives and uh, life and their derivatives and I got 60. I mean, it's like they're tied. <laughs> you 
It's just an equal, you know, just like this, believe and live, believe and life. And so today's passage, I think, is help us, helps us to understand a little bit more what John was trying to get at when he, thought, when he said that we would have life by believing in Jesus' name. Well, the story we're reading and looking at this morning is in John's Gospel, chapter 4. And if you want to open your Bibles and look at that, that's fine. I'm going to just sort of uh, do a little bit of a commentary on the story as we tell the story. But you can keep track, make sure I haven't forgotten any major details and uh, point them out. And uh, this is, I've titled sort of the offer of living water. It's often referred to as the woman at the well or the encounter at the well, I would say. Um, and it, it's, it's a tremendous story. Uh, John has carefully picked the stories that were written that we might believe and that might, we might have life. And this is one of the stories that he has picked. Now, John, a few weeks ago, we, we just had the story of another encounter with Nicodemus. And today's encounter is with this woman. Now, there can't be too much uh, more dissimilar people living in that land at that time. We just had the story about this very influential, well-educated, probably well-off, highly respected member of the Supreme Court coming to Jesus by night. And today we're talking about a, a woman, a foreigner woman, a Samaritan woman. Nobody knows, has had a difficult life, probably not very well-off, coming in the middle of the day. There's so many contrasts there. And yet, Jesus is saying, I think John is writing it for us, I'm wide open for all comers. doesn't matter whether you're the chief justice or the lowest of the low on the, strategy, on the totem pole of the society, that Jesus is there. And, and interesting enough, that the two are not so dissimilar in, in the sort of their responses and questions that they ask it makes us think that, you know, you don't have to have a, a brilliant education to be able to, to talk with Jesus. You, you just need to be yourself in front of him. And uh, this is a great comfort for us. So, our main character today is a woman. And women at that time had pretty low status in society. They didn't receive formal education usually. It's unlikely that many could read. Uh, they didn't have much of a role outside of the home for the most part. There were rules that they were to follow, like don't speak with strangers and don't go out with anyone except your husband or your family. They weren't allowed to give testimony in court even. They were sort of non-persons in that sense. But that's not the only thing about our character today. We don't, we don't even know her name, by the way. We never even hear it. It's not recorded. But she's a Samaritan woman to boot, and not just a, a Jewish woman, a Samaritan woman. Now, the Samaritans were despised by the Jews, um, and the Samaritans had similar feelings towards the Jews, I might add. In today's world, we think, might think of the prejudice that we hear about, you know, black and white. We hear so much of a racial tension, down, especially down south of the border, from among us, we might think of ourselves and the Aboriginals. There's a kind of a racial tension there that we, we don't tend to associate sometimes with those, much to our loss, probably, for sure. Um, 
Jews and Palestinians in today's world might be considered in that group too. They don't really have much dealings with each other. They kind of stay away from each other. So you could think of all sorts of different, probably around the world, different race relationships that uh, exist. And the woman of today's uh, story had really quite a difficult life. We learned that she'd had five husbands, and that must be hard on anybody, right, to have gone through five husbands, and she wasn't currently married. So Jesus was on the road again. The Pharisees were making life difficult for, for him in Judea, and he decided to go back to Galilee. He headed back north, most of the uh, Jews would go from Jerusalem around here and come back up to Galilee through that way because they didn't want to go through this country here or this province of Samaria. And so they avoided this, but Jesus, uh, John tells us, had to go through Samaria. He really just had to, right? Um, you know, he had to get to Galilee quick, probably. No, I, I think he had to get to Samaria because he had an appointment here at Sychar that he knew about uh, and that he wanted to, to keep. Nobody else knew about that appointment yet, but he certainly did. The Samaritans uh, were a people of sort of mixed ancestry. Remember in your history of the Old Testament, this northern kingdom, which is roughly where Samaria is, was conquered by the Assyrians and the people were exiled and the Assyrians brought in other people to populate this land. And these people lived here and they probably intermarried maybe with a remnant of Jewish people that were there. So these Samaritans were looked down upon by the Jews because they weren't really Jews. They didn't even believe in exactly the same thing the Jews believed in. They, they, they believed in this, apparently in the first five books of the Old Testament, but that's sort of where their scriptures stopped. They didn't go on and accept any of the other Jewish prophets. So they were kind of despised by the real Jewish people. Um, they thought that they should worship uh, here, actually not far from where our story takes place. Uh, this, there's apparently a, a temple built around there that was supposed to uh, sort of be the opposition to the temple in Jerusalem. Um, they built that around 400 BC, apparently. Uh, this is Josephus's account anyway. But the Jewish people at about 150 BC came and destroyed that temple. So that didn't add to any of the well fe good feelings between the races uh, when that happened, I'm sure. So Jesus chose to stop in about the center of the Samaritan religious world. This is kind of uh, where our story takes place. To, and if you looked at it today, you might see this sort of look. We're standing on Mount Gerizim. We're looking over to Mount Ebal. Now that might be, remember, those names might uh, uh, bring a memory to you. If you look back in the Old Testament when, when uh, the Mount of Blessings and the Mount of Cursings, when the people stood on each side and announced the blessings, this was the Mount of the Blessings and this was the Mount of Cursings and they yelled them back and forth across to each other from here when, when uh, back in Deuteronomy. Uh, this is sort of where the Israelites came back into the land at Joshua's time. In this part of the area, there's an old ruins here, Tel Bal. Balata, which is the ruins of Shechem. Remember that name in the Old Testament. Jacob came and lived here for a while, a bottled piece of land, dug a well, Jacob's well. And, uh, and Joseph apparently is buried here. 
And then we have our town over here, which was the town of Sychar at that time. And you can see the distance from the well to the village that uh, we were talking about. So, um, so a bit of quite a bit of history here in this part of the uh, of the uh, countryside. Now, this I, when I was researching this, I found some interesting stuff about this well that Jacob built. So Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal both have springs at the bottom of the mountain, that there's quite an abundance of water. And when some British explorers were going through there in the 1800s, they found uh, they could hear the water rushing around and uh, it was like springs. So the question is, why dig a well when there's springs around? Like, why bother? I'm not sure. But we know that there's, this is a pretty, um, pretty good site that it's well documented. There is the only well that's found and it seems to be the well that Jesus stopped at. Um, I just show you this picture. This is a little. I didn't. We didn't get to this uh, to Nablus. That's the current city, by the way, that's uh, occupying that site. The the uh, that's in the West Bank, and it's one of those areas which are in, a little bit off the traveling map. Uh, a bit of troubles around Nablus often. But we did stop at Mount G- um, Gilboa, which is a 20, 30 kilometers north, and that's in that's where Saul met his end, by the way, on Mount Gilboa, um, and it's not too far away. And we found there lots of springs and lots of pools of water at the base of the of Mount Gilboa. So it's not that dissimilar, I think. So why build a well uh, near Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal if there was springs there already? Maybe Jacob. Uh, wanted to control a water source for his own flocks and he didn't want to have to rely on the towns around him to get his water. Maybe, I don't know. But it's interesting. This well is still there today. It's now enclosed under a Greek Orthodox church. You uh, find this all over in the Holy Land. Any site that's considered possibly a, a sacred site where Jesus or some event took place, somebody builds a church over it or something like that. And no, this is no different. So this church now covers this well, but you can still go there and see this well. It's a deep well. We read that in the story. The well is deep, the woman says, and you have nothing to draw with. It is deep. It's 135 feet deep they've measured this well, and the water is 120 feet from the surface of the land. So there's like 15 feet of water in the bottom, but it's 120 feet till you get to water. Now, there's some thought that this water might be a little better than the waters of the springs. The springs are supposed to be kind of quite minerally there, and, uh, and the well water is, uh, is uh, sweeter, some connoisseurs of water tell us, but we're not really sure. I'm not sure about that. I'd have to go there and check that one out but, uh, or found some, find somebody who's actually tried it. But it, it's, it, it was, I thought that, you know, this was the, when I, was first, when I first read this story, I thought this was the source of water for this, the village and that everybody would come here to get their water. But probably that's not true. Only you make the distance, to dry, you know, that distance from Sychar to the well only for special reasons. Like, why would you do that if you had water enough nearby? So, our story, Jesus was, was tired and at noon he stopped by the well, sent his disciples on to go buy food. 
Yeah, kind of convenient, eh? Get rid of these guys. Let's, uh, let's uh, sit here by myself for a while. But he knew he wasn't going to be alone. I think it was then that uh, a tremendously important conversation started. The Samaritan woman in our story came to get water from the well. And much has been made about why she came at noon and why maybe she was alone. We're not even told that she was alone, but it seems that she might have been. And uh, was she looking for time alone, maybe? Or was she coming to get a special drink? Or maybe she knew that this well had some special spiritual significance, even then she was on a pilgrimage. Many people stop there today for that reason, but who knows? Um, uh, there's been much speculation about her character. Uh, we learn later in the story, as we've already mentioned, that she's had five husbands and Maybe she had uh, a reputation of being a loose woman, but that's debated. There are some people that think, no, she, she, she may not have been an immoral woman at all. But, and there's quite a good article, if you were interested in reading about that, in Christianity Today back in October of last year, titled, Was the Samaritan Woman Really an Adulteress? And if you're interested in reading that article for a different perspective on this, I, would, I have the, the website if you wanted to. Ask me for it or email me for it. But uh, that author certainly didn't think that she might be. She might have just had a rough life having had five husbands. We're not sure she divorced them. Maybe they all died. Who knows? We don't know. And maybe it's not uh, a good idea to over-speculate here when we, when we think about what she was like because we're not, we're not really told. By the way, how did John learn the details of this this conversation. And I think he wasn't there. He was off buying lunch. Um, there was only two people probably there that could have told John the story. And I doubt if it was Jesus for some reason. I don't think he would probably recount this. So I think John somehow got his details either directly or indirectly from the woman herself. So really... This story is kind of her testimony uh, written in John's Gospel. So here we have a story written by a woman, if you want to think of it that way, that's in the the Gospel of John. Jesus took notice of her immediately and went on to break a couple of really important cultural taboos. He spoke to a woman and he spoke to a Samaritan. Both of those things were no-nos for Jewish men at that time. They didn't talk to women unless they were their spouse. And they didn't talk to Samaritans. There was this feeling that if you talked to a Samaritan or drank something that a Samaritan had drank from, you became unclean. And here he asked her for a drink, probably from her cup or her drinking vessel. So he did things that really rocked the boat, she was pretty astounded that he would make a request. And he says, she says, what are you asking me, a Samaritan woman? A Samaritan. She didn't actually highlight the woman part. She highlighted the Samaritan part. That was more the thing for her. She said, you Jews, don't, you don't talk to us Samaritans. Why are you asking me for a drink? He then made a really profound statement, much deeper than the well even. It's so profound, I think. If you knew who I was and you knew God, you would ask me to meet your desire and I would give you living water. If you knew who, I, who you're talking to and if you knew the God about who we come here to worship, 
you would ask me for a drink of living water. She must have thought he'd been out in the sun a lot too long at this time. You know, like, who is this crazy man, Jewish guy, talking to me, a Samaritan woman, and uh, doesn't he know that that's off bounds? And he doesn't have any resources here anyway to get a drink. How is he going to get me a drink of living water? And living water actually is, uh, if you look at the uh, ideas, it's kind of a fountainish type of water. That was the uh, running water, gushing water, bubbling water, whereas other water was like what you'd find in a cistern or in the bottom of a well. And uh, living water was that bubbly, flowing, gushing sort of water. And, he, and she looks around and she says, this guy hasn't got anything like that. Well, what's he doing asking me this for? And, and uh, why is he telling me this? Then she asks, almost I think by chance, but uh, it's a very interesting question. She said, are, are you better, or are you greater than our, our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? You might think, well, why is that such a good question? Well, in just a few chapters, the Jewish leaders are asking Jerusalem, are you greater than Abraham? (laughs) Like she'd already clued in that he was somehow claiming to be someone greater than their ancestors, their patriarchs, Jacob and Abraham included. So I think... I don't know, by accident or by insight, she got it. Uh, she, she nailed it. What, what he was saying is that he's claiming to be greater than the patriarchs. Jesus then went on to explain uh, this metaphor of living water. And he said that, you know, like the water is only a temporary solution, the water from this well. If you drink that, you're going to thirst again. But this living water is a permanent solution for thirst and will actually result in the abundance and overflow of living water. And he was using the metaphor to explain something beyond the physical state. But just like Nicodemus didn't understand the idea that you have to be recreated, reborn, couldn't understand that, this woman didn't get the metaphor either. She said, well, give me the water and then I won't have to ever come back to this well again. You know, like, I really want this living water that will make me never thirst again. But of course, he wasn't speaking of our physical need for water. He was speaking of a deeper spiritual need that we all have. Jesus said, well, at this point, go and get your husband and we'll continue on this conversation. Maybe he was saying, well, let's make this... Uh, this talk is great, we, we, we need to make it sort of more culturally acceptable, I'll speak to a man and you can listen. I'm not sure why he, why he said that, interrupted that thought, but then she had to tell him, well, I don't have a husband. And he says, well, yeah, I knew that. <laughs> You've had five of them and, the, and you're with a man now that's not your husband. So I won't make more comments on that, but uh, much has been speculated on that. How could he have known this? This was a, not a significant person in the countryside. Nobody probably knew her story like that. Maybe some of the people living next to her didn't even know some of the, these details. And there's no way that this Jewish guy from out of town could have known something like that. He had impressed Nathaniel earlier in a previous encounter by telling Nathaniel, I saw you and you didn't even know me at that time. And I saw you under that fig tree. And Nathaniel was impressed. Wow, this is, you're the son of God. This woman has a similar thing, you know. Nobody has this knowledge about me, then how could you know this? She immediately recognizes his prophetic status.
status that at that time. She thought, well, this is a prophet, somebody that God has spoken to. And, and something she tried to change the subject, but I, I wonder if she, really, she wasn't really quite a deep thinker about these things and immediately saw, well, this is a prophet, this is a question that I have and I wanted it answered. And so I'm going to ask it right now to someone who actually has a connection with God. And, and after all, how many times would a man be willing, a, man, a prophet like this, a man be willing to speak to me anyway? So I'm going to, you know, there's nobody else around. I'm going to ask this question. I don't know. This is, I'm over-speculating probably at this point too. But she had a question about uh, uh, worship. And Jesus didn't brush it off like it was a distraction, like she was trying to change the subject. She, he actually went into a fairly detailed answer about this question. And she said, some people say that we should worship here and some people say we should worship in Jerusalem, but what is the right place to worship? And Jesus goes on to explain, you know, time is coming and it ha- actually now has come where it doesn't matter where you worship. It doesn't matter who you are in terms of a racial background. It's the person you are before God that matters, the one that's there in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit and we need to worship him with our spirit. And it doesn't matter our background, our place, but it matters how we present ourselves to God. We need to be honest and just ourselves before him and worship with our spirit. The depth of this answer demonstrated that Jesus had a a great respect for this woman and her ability to think and understand his answer. And, uh, you know, Jewish people didn't teach women, but here he spent the time to teach her this important truth. One that we're still mining the details of, you know, the depth of what that means to us this day. This woman was also a woman of faith and, and she knew enough about the Old Testament prophecies that, to know that one day someone would come, a great teacher, who she called the Messiah, would come and, and teach them all of these things. Because uh, she didn't know about this question. She says, I don't know about that, but I, I do know that the Messiah is coming. He's going to teach us everything. And right before her, Jesus makes one of those great declarations. The one you're talking with is the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. He declares it before her. Not in a big crowd of people, but just to him and her. An intimate disclosure that he hadn't done for anybody else, really. And uh, that's amazing. (laughs) And it's one of the clearest recorded declarations made by Jesus as to who he was. And it was made to a Samaritan woman. It's amazing. Amazing. Right on cue, the disciples show up. Oh, guys, don't come now. I'm just waiting to hear the answers to all these things. You know, like, can you come? And you're spoiling the moment. I don't think they really, Jesus knew they were coming and he didn't really fuss about that. But they did kind of uh, look askance. They saw Jesus talking to Samaritan woman and they had it written all over their faces. Wrong, you know, wrong. Bad teacher, bad, you know, like... This is not what you do. What are you doing out here, Lord? Like, come on, you know, like, we're, we're supposed to be following you. Don't, don't make us look so bad. Um, she got the message. They didn't say anything. It says they just, you know, but um, she got the message and she got, went off. She even left her water pot. I think they rattled her so much when they, judge, when they their looks of judgment. Um, so she left her jar, but she um, didn't just, go uh, and, and, and fearfully hide. She had something to tell. So she went back to the village and said, come and meet somebody who's told me everything about me. 
Could he be the Messiah was her, was her question to the village. This is one thing that makes me think she wasn't a, a, a loose woman with a low reputation because the villagers all perked up and listened to her. Otherwise, they'd say, oh, crazy lady, you know, she's uh, back again. But here she is telling this incredible news and some of them even believed that this Messiah was here from just her testimony that way. And they all came back and they all came to see Jesus and then they said, wow, this is great. And they, they did an audacious thing. They asked a Jewish rabbi to stay in their town. That's pretty amazing for these Samaritans who didn't get along with. And he agreed and he stayed there two days. And many of them became believers in him because of not just the testimony of the woman, but because of what he taught them as well. So tremendous opportunity was had to, for, the, for this town and village to come to Jesus. And it's amazing, their story. So, we'll just talk a bit about this living water in the few minutes we have left. What did Jesus offer this woman? How did it change her and the villagers who believed in it? So water and, li- and life are very closely related. Uh, and we, we know that. This is a picture of the desert um, west, uh, sorry, east of Jerusalem. And this is a picture somewhere, I think, in Jamaica. Yeah, that's in Jamaica. <laughs> I mean, the, the difference in ter- terrain is, uh, you know, the difference is because of the water available, right? Uh, desert, no life. Jamaica, lots of life. And uh, we, we see that the water has a, a close relationship to life and we need it as part of our sustaining thing. So, so watered fields are green and lush, but deserts are no life. Water is a pretty common Old Testament picture for God's sustaining privilege, uh, provision. And, and, and those who drink of him have life or live. You remember this uh, picture of Psalm 1 where there's a tree planted by the water and it doesn't wither. This picture is actually repeated in, in uh, Jeremiah's uh, book and it's almost, almost word for word, thought by thought anyway. Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8 says, But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes, its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. So that picture of a well-watered tree is in Jeremiah. And just a few verses later, though, uh, Jeremiah has a warning and, uh, for those who, who don't uh, take of this water. In Jeremiah 17:13, he says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. So Jeremiah referred to the Lord as that spring of living water. And Jesus is saying, I've got this offer of living water for you. And it has to do with your relationship to me. Jeremiah says, if you forsake the Lord, if you forget about him and turn away from him, back to dust for you. If you stick with the Lord, well-watered tree that bears fruit even during troubled times. Water just produces so many beautiful spots. I think that's a garden out in Victoria, British Columbia. Pool of water with all the flowers around it. Jesus was offering the woman life. 
Living water is a metaphor for this eternal life, life forever, real life, spiritual life, satisfying life, life with purpose, life with meaning, God's life in us. She didn't understand the metaphor, but neither did Nicodemus. And they, so, nor the people later, when he, when he says about eating his body and drinking his blood, they thought, well, how can we do that? You know, eat his flesh. They didn't get that metaphor either. So these metaphors are kind of lost on us unless we think about them. But there's all sorts of aspects of this life that are, that are taught in John's Gospel. I think he goes over and over the metaphors again and again to, to hammer the point home about what this life is like and what it, we need to do. We often mention that there were seven signs in John's Gospel, and I, I often think those were given so that we might believe, and then the I am statements are, there's seven, or Dave says there's nine, but uh, there's, <laughs> it depends how you count them. But there's those I am signs, and they are, deal with life. Each of those signs, each of those I am statements is closely related to life. If you, you'll find it in the same verse or in a verse or two just either side of that I am statement. You'll find the word life. The only one you won't is on I am the vine, which is just a picture of life already. Uh, all the others have the life right there. You know, like, I am the light of the world, the light of life, and I am the bread uh, of life. I am the gate, and then I've come that they might have life more abundantly. Uh, I am the shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the vine. All of them have to deal with the life. Uh, and so each of these metaphors we need to look at to understand a little bit more about life. The water of life is actually comes up twice in John's Gospel and it comes back in chapter 7. So when we get there, we'll see it again. John has collected these stories that we can see that, that the life offered and we can see it from a number of different perspectives. I put a picture of a diamond up there, the different facets of, the, of life that we look at and the different ways that it, sh- it shines through uh, the stories that John tells us. So why do we need life? Well, apart from God, apart from that, that water of life and all the other lights, things, that metaphors that we hear about, there's a thirst and a hunger and a darkness and a lack of satisfaction, purpose, meaning. I mean, there's a number of things we do to try and fill those holes, but, but there's something lacking that only Jesus can bring us. Jesus speaks later in John about the condemnation, or he's spoken earlier about that, that he came so that people wouldn't face that condemnation. But they're already condemned. They're already spiritually dead. Paul writes to the Ephesians and Romans about that spiritual deadness that we experience. It's an emptiness and a lostness, a darkness and futility. So what, uh, what ways do people try and uh, overcome this emptiness in their life? Now that we talked about them, things that earlier in our message about things we do to make ourselves feel alive. And there are lots of things that people try and fill the void with, uh, their, their achievements, their goals, their careers, personal challenges, relationships and friends and partners, uh, travel, vacation and pleasure. We, we stuff ourselves with that so that we feel a little better about ourselves. Exercise again. Some people use substances like drugs and alcohol and other things to kind of numb themselves. 
And then I put this picture up about these people who jump off things to make themselves feel alive. Kind of a, not many people in the world do this, but these are the extreme people that really need to do something to make themselves feel alive. Base jumping, have you heard of that term? Buildings, antennas, spans, or earth. They, They jump off of buildings or antennas or bridges or cliffs. And it was said that they used spans for bridges because they didn't want another bee like there, and then it would be babe jumping. So they had to call it base jumping, so they had to put spans in there. But, uh, but they do these things, and I actually looked up on, online a bit about uh, why people uh, do this sort of thing. Why do they jump off buildings and other things? And um, I found a quote from this guy, Joshua Muramant, he's quite crazy uh, in terms of the things he does. He's a computer software engineer, which makes me worry about my oldest son because that's what he does. But, uh, so he says, it's a crazy rush. The moment you jump, there's a surge of excitement, but seconds after, as the canopy snaps open above your head, the feeling of survival fires one of the hardest adrenaline kicks I've ever had. And it makes you not just feel alive, but that being alive is unquestionably worth it. I've yet to contain myself from yelling, woohoo, at that exact moment. And honestly, I'll be disappointed the day it doesn't happen. So he's, he's actually anticipating a day when even this won't make him feel alive. And he's going to be disappointed in that day. But he, if you go to his website or his Facebook, you'll find crazy things that he does. Anyway, he's actually fairly uh, well written. He, he, he makes some good points. Um, all of these things provide temporary relief from that thirst of significance, purpose, or adrenaline, whatever. Um, but, but Jesus offers an endless and ever-increasing volume of satisfaction. It will overflow and pour out of us. It's... It's not a, a, a high that just for a moment, but it's an endless freedom from the problems. Uh, sorry, not a, an endless high or a freedom from problems, but a, it's an internally satisfying feeling that he offers. Amazing. How do we get this life? That verse that, that Jesus started out, if you knew the generosity of God and who I am, you would be asking me for a drink and I would give you fresh living water. Jesus says it's yours for the asking. You just have to know who I am, believe, and know about God that we worship, that he wants to give you this thing. This is his generous gift to you. And then you ask and you get. Um, John goes on to say in chapter 5, verse 24, he who hears and believes has eternal life and has crossed over from death to life. Not in the future, but Right then, right then, as soon as you ask, we have that eternal life, that life-giving water. What is this life like? Well, it starts with the gift and continues forever. It's here and now, and it's not just for life after our time on earth. It starts here and now. I would say it's, these are some of my thoughts, so you can challenge them or think about them or find your own thoughts about what this life is. I'm sure it's, it's way beyond description and beyond even a few minutes of time here, but it's dynamic. Uh, and what I mean by that, our choices affect this life quality. 
So we have it, but we may choose to ignore it like the Israelites did. They drifted away from God and then they dried up because they ignored the springs of living water. We need to continue to drink from that fountain that Jesus offers us. We need to continue eating the bread that he gives us. We need to continue walking in the light. We need to keep going in through that gate that he is, the one way that he provides us. We need to follow the shepherd. We need to continue to trust in the Savior. We need to stay on the path. And we need to abide in that vine. And I just went through all the I am statements there. I don't know if you noticed that, but they are all things we need to, to maintain this life that we have in an, in an overflowing, fresh state. Because it is possible to let it go, to ignore it, to dry up a bit, to wither and not to experience what we can. And the more we are close to Jesus, the more we spend with time with him, the more we abide in him, we will become more and more aware of this life and what it does for us. What else is this life like? I'm, I'm going back to my base jumper there, that Josh Miramant, and he, he talks in his little uh, uh, essay that he wrote about why he does this, about flow. Now, flow is a psychological term that people use. Um, actually, it's older than that, but it, it's an idea that when you're doing something you become energized and focused and fully involved and you enjoy the process or activity. Uh, he gets this flow feeling when he's preparing to jump off a building or a cliff. He also gets it when he's doing a project and he's intensely involved in it or other things. And it reminded me uh, that this would be a bit what life would be like, I imagine, if we were continually Uh, in relationship with Jesus the way we should be. We would have an energized focus, be fully involved and enjoying the process of life. And that wouldn't be just a temporary state. We would be in in all the time. I think one of the ways you you could be there is, you know, a time of meditation and prayer with Jesus would put you into a, a place of energized focus and full involvement. So that's one of the qualities I think we could expect to get from the, uh, the life that he offers us. One more thing that uh, Josh mentioned in his uh, thing is that after he jumps, he becomes quite reflective about life and he thinks about how short it is, how uh, kind of insignificant sometimes it is, but uh, all of these things he becomes reflective. He has a change in perspective and he sees things in a clearer way and, and more open to I, other ideas and things that, uh, um, that impact him. And I was thinking about how we as Christians, if we have that relationship with Christ, if we've accepted his living water, we should have a, a changed perspective, a reflectivity of what we are and who we are and what's important out there. When Moody, D.L. Moody, became a Christian, he said of his conversion experience, I was in a new world the next morning. The sun shone brighter and the birds sang sweeter. The old elms waved their branches for joy and all nature was at peace. It's that new perspective that he had once he accepted that gift. And we have the idea that there is a newness there, something new. We see life from God's perspective. I put a picture of the earth and the stars there, thinking that's how you know, God's perspective is much broader than ours and we, got, we, we can see life a little bit from his perspective. 
So we should have that reflective attitude as well. So how will this life make a difference in us? Well, we can have this unquenchable joy, peace and love, even in the face of trials and difficult times. We can be fruitful. We can have the energy and vitality needed to serve God. And we can be an oasis in a dry world and help uh, others and testify to others about the one who gave us this life. We have a song to sing at the end here, uh, Then I Shall Live, it's to the tune of Finlandia. But the words were written by, most of these words were written by uh, Gloria Gaither, Tim, so <laughs> for you. But we changed a few of the words just at the end, just, you'll, you'll know ones, the ones I changed a little bit. Um, so we'll sing this song and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, we thank you for your blessings of this day and for your goodness in giving us this life. And we pray that we might fully comprehend it to the limit of our abilities, that we might enjoy it, that we might stay in it, that we might abide in you, that we would partake of your water in a daily way. In Jesus' name, amen.